0: Joining us today are Amy and TJ Bach. Amy is a seasoned first responder mental health specialist. As the owner of Resilience Counseling and Consultation, she's endorsed by prominent national organizations and remains committed to offering evidence-based treatments for those facing post-traumatic stress injuries. As a licensed professional clinical counselor and a certified first responder counselor, Amy has dedicated her career to supporting the unseen mental battles our heroes face. So TJ brings a depth of knowledge from the physical security fields and currently holds the position of Director of Protective Services at Nationwide Children's Hospital. With over a decade of experience in the security industry, his journey has seen him work with giants like Amazon Web Services, and also in various crucial roles at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Both Amy and TJ represent the intersection of mental health and security, two vital sectors that often overlap. Welcome to the podcast, Amy and TJ. Thank you for having us, I'm excited.
1: Yes, thank you very much.
0: I'm so excited to have you guys because I constantly have secured people from the security industry on this podcast and they're always like, you know, technology. Awesome. That's how we can kind of help violence in the ER, but then mental health always comes up, people always talk about it. And so I'm so excited to have a husband and wife team as well.
1: (laughs) Definitely unique. And we're happy to share our experiences and, and kind of get in.
0: Awesome. So Amy, when or how did you realize that supporting the mental health of first responders was your calling? Yeah,
2: that's a great question. Um, I think I was, in thinking about that, there was really um, one major incident we had several years ago, just here in our small community um, where we experienced the loss of two law enforcement officers in the line of duty. And the impact of that was just profound and really had ripple effects well beyond our small community. But what I saw following that was the complete devastation on the faces of the responders, being from numerous jurisdictions, numerous departments, again, because that the effect of that was just so widespread. And really being able to support and treat those responders so they could process what they saw, what they had to do, and just the magnitude of what happened was a truly pivotal moment for me. Um, you know just really being able to help the helpers so their personal and professional lives can continue in a healthy way after such a tragedy is really what it's all about.
0: Yeah, totally. So what differentiates the mental health needs of first responders from others?
2: First responders really do have unique needs when it comes to mental health counseling and support. One of the most significant factors that I see is the impact of that these first responder careers have on the central nervous system. Hmm. Uh, because when you're doing a job, um, and like for the job that you're doing, and having to maintain your physical safety throughout that job requires that you function at a state of hyper hyper arousal, hyper vigilance. Right. Your central nervous system can get caught on this roller coaster between being over activated, and then at some point it has to correct for itself, and then. You see a lot of first responders kind of bottom out when they get home to this under arousal state where it's really hard to maintain relationships and a healthy balance in their personal life. They're rarely functioning in that ideal zone of the central nervous system functioning. So helping first responders regulate that um, that response, which, again, part of that is just part of the job, is having to be functioning way up here to to be safe, but mm-hmm. trying to reduce the impact on the rest of your life. And also like physical health, because there are certain, definitely some long term complications physically that come from always functioning in that state of arousal. And I think the other big thing would be just the reality of cumulative trauma that first responders are exposed to throughout their career. You know, if, if you think about the average length of someone's career and the amount of death, violence, trauma, Uh, just overall traumatic experiences that they're exposed to throughout that time. The buildup of that experience really has the biggest long-term impact on our responders. So we tend to be pretty good at supporting first responders right after a critical incident, um, but we're not so good at um, taking care of those kind of the average runs that first responders are taking, but are still pretty overwhelming to the nervous system and can overwhelm just our natural ability to cope and process those experiences. And I think that's pretty unique too, because the trauma is also continuing. It's not something that's over and you can kind of move, work to move past. They're continually exposed to that throughout the career.
0: Yeah, totally. I wonder if burnout is an issue with them as well.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And like a lot of that compassion fatigue too, where you're just Inundated by human suffering and tragedy, that it can be hard to maintain that emotional balance, for sure.
0: Well, it's so exciting to to talk to the hero that supports the heroes. So, thank you. That's awesome. Um, so, TJ, given your experience with tech giants and healthcare settings, how do the challenges and solutions of workplace violence prevention and mental health awareness differ between these sectors?
1: Oh, wow. So, yes. Totally different, just from the security sector, right? Um, and and so, kind of piggybacking off of what Amy was talking about, is it's it's your clients that you're seeing, right? So, uh, my time at a tech giant, for example, we didn't deal with as much public. Plus, the healthcare industry—that's what you're seeing a lot of. You you know, it's open to the public. Uh, you have imtala where you have to, you know, you have to provide that that health. So there's that balance. There's more of a security balance uh, in the healthcare security industry, and so therefore we are exposed to a lot more risk of workplace violence and also uh, that first responder mental health aspect of it. So, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of the medical staff, obviously, as first responders, right? And I consider the security staff as well, first responders. They're witnessing a lot of that trauma too. Not just the ED staff, they are, but they're coming in and the security staff is really the ones that are supposed to be the supporters of that staff too. So those are unsung heroes as well that need to be taken care of. And that's difference of that, although still same importance.
0: So a lot of people talk about how um, health security is so different than other security. And like from talking to different leaders in this space, it's I think a lot of it has to do with the mental health because they're not premeditative necessarily. It's like, all right, I'm frustrated. I'm going to pull out a gun or, you know, mm-hmm. but like it's not premeditative, um, a lot to do with like mental health issues coming into the ER. They don't really mean to. Um, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it, exactly. It's exactly that. Um, there's, again, when you're dealing with the public, and then, you know, just in in my case, dealing with pediatrics. So you have a lot more you you, you deal with a, a lot of families really, um, you know, struggling emotionally. Yeah, uh, when there's a child involved, it, it's different. Um, and so we, we tried to get that training and saying, Uh, you know, hear this family out, you know, and we want to be that. Um, But we also have to take care of them. Um, If they're if they're training, and they're wanting to do that, they're also going through their own traumatic experiences and making sure, you know, uh, in turn to try to help that family, whether it be the patient having a mental health crisis themselves, Mm -hmm. uh, the parents really dealing with emotional distress coming in, or even a family member, right? That's where, you'll see it differently in the healthcare setting is we're here to help protect and um, we need to protect them as well.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think of myself as a parent, I'm like, Oh man, if like one of my kids was in the emergency room or something really serious, I mean, mama bear would do anything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> mama mm-hmm. bear probably would, you know, pull something out. I don't know.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and so that's the thing is we want to be, we put ourselves, it's hard not to put, you know, just mentally ourselves in these family shoes right. and and act emotional ourselves. So there's a whole training aspect to that and coming into this environment, uh, which is a place of healing. It's a very tough balance.
0: Totally. And you're dealing with people at their worst. So it's yes. like, it's a yes. Thing. So given your roles in mental health and physical security, how do you believe the two intersect, particularly when addressing workplace violence?
1: Because, I mean, here you see a uh, husband and wife, so it, it intersects because now we're on this podcast, right? It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's just kind of fun to see how that goes is because mental health, uh, which is great, becoming so aware, especially in the healthcare space, kind of what we touched on before. I look at my team as first responders as well. So, and it's, it's one of those, we always talk about getting the mental health for our patients and our families. And, and even with workplace violence coming in now, we're really focusing on staff as well, which is important. So that's why I really want to bring that awareness to the, the security professional there is because they kind of are acting as that first responder as well.
2: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And what we know about trauma too is a common symptom if for someone who's experienced trauma is that strong emotional dysregulation, which leads to easily angered, lower frustration tolerance, um, and all of those kind of symptoms, which ultimately can contribute to as kind of chaotic situations or workplace violence. So being able to also have preventative programs and wellness programs in place so that we're supporting responders in preparing them for the exposure that they'll have throughout their career and giving them tools ahead of time on how to manage that stress. So that it isn't rising to the level of post-traumatic stress or, you know, more significant mental health concerns, which of course have the emotional and behavioral components to them sometimes too.
0: Yeah. Have you seen that on your teams, DJ? Like the emotional dysregulation because they're constantly dealing with so much stress and how do you handle it and can you get them back?
1: Like, Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, and I guess that's where... Um, it was a big wake up call, right? Um, I started out as the uh, entry level security officer on night shift, actually at the place that I work now, right? And um, so I, I kind of, I was able to go through that and then see where, you know, I may see something so devastating and stressful. And what I did myself is I buried it, right, because I had to go back out. And I had to make sure that I was okay for these families and that I was okay for the staff members and these patients that really are relying on me, for example, or my officers to be able to, you know, protect them and and de escalate them, but really What I was doing is I wasn't really taking care of myself in that, right? And so that's now I can see it in kind of our officers. So we're changing operations there. We've got a really good, the hospital is so supportive and making sure to take care of our employees to include our officers that we're looking at a recovery model, right? For workplace violence, which is, you know, part of that. We have good EAP or Employee Assistance Program. We have we have great internal teams that come over and uh, help um, our officers and our staff members with some of this. So we're we're growing in that space, and I hope that the rest of the the hospital systems, the first responders, uh, we see it with police and fire, and what Amy's doing, and it's good to see that direction.
2: Yeah, and that's such a good point that you made about um, having to be sort of that stable, stoic person that people are looking to in this time of crisis for them, whether it's a police officer, firefighter on the street, or your officers in the hospital, people are looking to you for that physical feeling that this is going to be okay. So you're really trained and need to keep those emotions in check to maintain the safety and stability of the situation. But like you said, it's important to go back to that and <laughs> to deal with it and process that what you went through when you're able to, um, because in the moment you're really kind of taught and trained to put, put emotions aside, but yeah. it's not there and not affecting you.
0: Mm-hmm. So for those security officers that don't have like a mental health program, I mean, what recommendations do you guys have for them in order to recover from these traumatic events?
2: Um. So I'm sorry, you said for hospitals that don't have, like right the
0: resources for i mean most people don't right and the officers are just you know Mm -hmm. there and they're supposed to be that calming influence but i mean in the er they deal with a lot of stuff so can you give them advice on recovering from a traumatic event
2: Mm -hmm. i think even when whether it's a hospital or another agency not everywhere has the resources to have these in-house programs and um in-house kind of response teams to critical incidents and um difficult cases but you know even being able to build relationships with mental health providers in the community and really just kind of making that normal for people to to seek out that help and that can really come from from leadership from the top down of just you know being affected by these things doesn't make you weak or doesn't make you unable to do the job. But yeah, being affected by some of these things that, you know, even TJ has seen at the hospital and the responders I'm seeing are exposed to deal with a lot of things and process a lot of information, but natural ability to process and cope.
1: Yeah. And and my my advice is especially with the um the growing awareness with workplace violence within, you know, healthcare and, and beyond, uh, Amy hit hit it right on the head right there, is is it starts with leaders. And it starts with that culture of make it part of your workplace violence program, right? Mm-hmm. Make that part. It's so important to make it normal to take care of yourself. And so therefore you can take care of others.
0: Yeah. I've had a couple of nurses on this um, podcast and they kind of talk about just how much abuse they're taking in the, in the emergency room. So I mean, I guess they're not, I don't know if you would call them first or, I mean, maybe you could call, would you call them first responders?
1: I absolutely would. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. When they're out there and, and something happens, guess what? We we call the medical staff and they're right there with us. Right. Oh. So it's a one team effort and really getting them out there and they're seeing some very traumatic things. And, and also going through that same, you know, even before, uh, sometimes it's reactionary. So they're calling us and security to come here. Yeah, when the action's already happening back there. So there's already traumatic events and emotional outbursts or, um, you know, something and we're coming in to help. But so, yeah, I would absolutely consider them in the same realm as a first responder.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I'm just shocked of how much violence right now the doctors and the nurses, especially the nurses are having to deal with, especially post-COVID. I don't know if you've seen that in in your guys' um career is just the violence increasing post COVID. And if you have any thoughts on that, like why or?
1: Yeah, definitely in our space, we definitely see the increase in violence, but we also see the increase in awareness of it as well. Um, You you know, I'm seeing I'm, I'm very proud when I go around and I see that we're not accepting it as just part of the job anymore. Because that's right. not acceptable, and and I think that's where a lot of this workplace violence um, talk is going, and these programs are going, and that's what we're telling a lot of our people is it's not part of your job, right? It's not. Right. It's um. It may happen, but how how are we going to take care of you when it does, right? And um. And, and that's the worst thing. That's what we're telling our security personnel here, right? Is it's not just part of the job, but we're going to train you in how to how to help, and we're going to support you afterwards.
0: Yeah. What sort of, I mean, kind of along that same line, I mean, what are you guys excited about? What kind of innovations in this, in both either security, mental health, what What are you kind of excited about? And you see promising looking forward to keep everyone safer and happier, really.
2: Yeah. One thing I'm really excited about and that I'm kind of reaching out into this branch also are a lot of departments, police and fire departments locally here are implementing more proactive wellness programs where I'm actually coming into these departments and meeting with each of their law enforcement officers or firefighters once a year for an annual wellness visit. So similar to the annual physicals that at least you know most departments uh. require, um, they're actually having you know these mandatory mental health wellness visits also, and it's just such a good way to to normalize the impacts of these careers. Also, I think once people are able to sit down and meet with a therapist and just see that it's not so bad, that they're far more likely to reach out if and when maybe something is needed in the future because th- one of the biggest barriers to first responders seeking services is that right after a critical incident isn't the time you want to start looking for a mental health provider. Just the same way you have a primary care doctor,
0: um, right.
2: having some sort of relationship with a mental health provider greatly increases that access. And it it really just normalizes it for people. Everyone has to come, everyone has to have their session, and it's fine, and they do great with it. So um, that's definitely becoming more and more common, at least here in Ohio. Um, this seems to be the the first year for a lot of departments, and then some are hopping on board next year also so I that's something I'm really
0: excited about I love that sorry to interject before you before you answer the question but I've often thought about like with just the patients that come to the ER like why are we you know we we fix them like the they get their medication they are they feel good after they walk out of the ER and then they're kind of just like they get, don't continue that. So it's like, I love the idea of a wellness check because it's like, okay, like how can we actually prevent people after they've had a mental health crisis, going to the ER, like not doing it again. And I feel like, well, it's like, why are we not having kind of a check-in wellness after the patient has been to the mm-hmm. ER from a mental health issue? Anyway, just my side idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And and to go along with that, that, that right there, that's what's exciting, at least in the mental health and the, in the security field. Again, the awareness of workplace violence. And it's something that um, I think in the security world, it's kind of been called out a lot as a risk. And um, it's not that we're happy that it's happening, but that it's coming to light. We're seeing more reporting. So more reporting means that, you know, we're getting that real data, we're getting what we need. We have associations that, you know, within security that help support all of that. And then we get to see all the awesome technology innovations that are coming through. I mean, you know, Lisa, the AI component that's affecting the entire world, right? And where we're able to use that kind of functionality to bring security and make it a safer environment in these areas that have high rates of workplace violence, like healthcare. And now we're able to actually tackle it because we've identified the problem. We're now able to sort of analyze that problem and use those technologies to come and hopefully solve the problem
0: yeah no i mean data is so critical it's like i couldn't believe that most hospitals they have no clue like how many people actually brought a weapon in or how many you know mm-hmm. so i think they will be happy with the data that you're going to get from our system but um
2: mm-hmm.
0: but yeah it's just like okay we need to know exactly what's happening and track what's happening and before we can um track you know the, the results but um but mm-hmm. i think would be really cool is if you put our system and you get the data and then and then you can say okay now we're gonna have wellness visits because i think wellness visits is like so so key mm-hmm. uh, to making the world safer and especially in the er because it's like there's so many mental health patients coming in so it's like tracking that and then seeing if the wellness visits make a difference improvement mm-hmm. so
1: Absolutely, and we see it with uh, Amy and her. You know, counterparts are doing as well around with first responders, and we're starting to see that. And we're starting to, you know, as she mentioned, it's becoming the norm out there with first responders in the world. Um, you know, let's let's bring that same thing and that same kind of mentality to be able to start that um, and within the healthcare security world as well. And, um, so if we all work together and kind of go off of this whole thing and moving forward and normalizing that it's okay to take care of your thoughts and and your brain and making sure that that's well, just as much as your, your physical health. I'm sorry, I'm going to put, I'm going to put Amy on the spot for a second because she Mm -hmm. has on that same note, she said something the other day that is in there and I think it's great and it makes sense. You remember what I'm saying, there, Amy? No, what is it? What is it like? I, the not... exercise for your brain, or uh gosh, what was that? Um Because oh, it's check
2: up from the neck up.
1: Check up from the neck up, right there. So <laughs> make sure you get that right. I I think that's great. Uh She said that the other day, and it made me laugh. And I bring I bring it I up. Was I was joking,
0: but yeah. <laughs> I think you should coin that phrase. We're gonna. We're gonna thing. It's so critical. Mm-hmm. It is. It is question for you um do you find that this the issues that the first responders face like with PTSD do you find it similar with like soldiers um people in the military like in what well, how they deal with PTSD do you, is it similar like what they're going yeah through?
2: yeah there are definitely a lot of overlaps between the experiences from between veteran, military veterans and first responders also, especially some of the like psychological reactivity. So, you know, being easily startled, um, always kind of having to have your back to the wall so you can see the whole room, Um, just those real like safety type measures. Um, But I think one of the biggest differences in that I've, you know, some veterans that I've worked with have said the same thing that they see as different is that their exposure had a beginning and an end. So when they were deployed, they were in all of this and exposed to all of this. But, you know, when they look at police and fire, they see like yours never ends. Like we, you do this for 25 years plus. And um, so it's not comparing them or minimizing one over the other. But that is a big difference is that our police and fire are just are continuing to go out You know, while I'm seeing them. where typically if I have someone from the military, it's after deployment and. Some of those dynamics are a little bit different, Um, kind of preparing the police and fire to get back into work that night and do it all over again.
0: Yeah. So it's like, how do you like I just imagine they're like still in this like fight or flight response and they can't turn it off. Like, How do you go about teaching them to turn it off when they need to? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, that's um, a huge thing that we work on is kind of like taking, you know, letting the armor down when you're not at work um, because you need it when you're there. Uh, Serves a really important function, but it doesn't serve you in personal relationships or in your personal life. But it's hard when say you're on an eight or 12 hour shift as a police officer and you you have to be so situationally aware the entire time. It's very hard to just clock out and then be like, okay, I'm safe now. So our nervous systems really don't like that. Um, So one thing that has been um, really helpful with that is, Uh, Just teaching some more, they're called kind of somatic interventions, which can be, are more body-based, whether it's tactical breathing and those types of skills that really target the nervous system, physiologically slow the heart rate down and can kind of bring you back to that ideal area of functioning. Um, But also, you know, other therapies like EMDR, which is um, a highly, highly used, highly researched trauma therapy is incredibly helpful for also rewiring, you know, the way memories are stored in the brain and in turn, you know, lowering that fight or flight response.
0: That's so cool. I don't know much about EMDR. EMDR. Or, um, <laughs> it's not like mainstream, right? I mean, it's like, well, but I mean, somatic, you, you mentioned somatic mm-hmm.
2: therapy. Yeah, Um. those are actually becoming far more well-researched and becoming more of the recommended treatments for a lot of, especially trauma-based disorders. Um, because what's really interesting is that when your nervous system is in that heightened state of arousal during fight or flight, so let's say a police officer responding to domestic violence or um, you know some potentially dangerous situation, and they go into that fight or flight mode, the cognitive parts of your brain actually kind of shut down and go offline and you're functioning okay. in, in the limbic system, which is okay. the part of the brain that's just wired for survival. Um So when that cognitive part shuts down, it really prevents some of the information and the experience that you're having from being effectively processed and stored in the brain. And that's when those memories can become problematic and can lead to some of those post-traumatic stress injury symptoms. So doing more of the somatic base or EMDR allows for that deeper processing because cognitive therapies are great in some situations, but when we're not functioning with the cognitive part of the brain, mm-hmm. those can only go so far sometimes.
0: That's so cool. You you seem like you're so on the cutting edge of all things mental health. I try to be. <laughs> <Yeah>. I try. <laughs> I mean, I mean, even like my parents' generations, like mental health was like they never even talked about it at all. Like our generation talks about it so much, and uh, right, and I think it's so cool how you're bringing it to the first responders because I didn't even know that was a thing. So,
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, and then yeah, I I love it. I enjoy it a lot. Yeah. And to TJ's point, like, I, I didn't even think about like, I, this sounds horrible. but I didn't think about like a security officer and their traumatic experiences that they go through. But um, but I yeah, didn't... I think that's one of the under
2: recognized because even before I met TJ, I didn't really know all of just what they have to do sometimes at the hospital, you know, involving right. little, little kids and the traumas and all of that. So they're they're right there on those with those patients, too.
0: Let's say you're like a security officer budget is therapy is expensive. What would you recommend they can do? That's like, they don't have to pay a
1: therapist for. That's a great question. Yeah. Amy, hopefully you have some good resources on that one.
2: (laughs) I think, I mean, one of the most important measures that can be implemented that is either low cost or cost free is a really good peer support team. Um, Mm -hmm. First responders like going to people who understand them and their culture, their know. the work shift, um and all of that. So, if you're able to implement a really strong peer support team, um that's arguably one of the kind of the most important supports to have in place. Um sometimes some money will go into that as far as like some mental health trainings for the team lead, but um, it's really really cost effective and people are uh-huh. have a higher likelihood of of accessing that first jumping right into therapy sometimes.
1: You hit the nail on the head there Amy. Peer support is huge. <clears throat> um and just like your police officers, firefighters, <clears throat> um we have a lot of those that work within the security field. It's it's so close and and that's been beneficial for us as well. Right? Is a strong peer support program. Also some of the things that Amy mentioned earlier, just some knowing some of the learning about the stuff that we didn't know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, about what part of the brains are going and understanding your unique situation that you may be in. As a security officer, or a police officer, or firefighter, you also can learn things like Amy said, tactical breathing, right? And and knowing when to do that and how that goes and how that affects you. That that helped me a lot when I learned about some of that stuff. And and then I knew I had to do that. And it helped me in the moment. So knowledge and training in that aspect is is cost effective. It's just a learn a little bit about it
0: yeah i mean i guess i'm wondering if you have a peer have uh, in your security department do you have a peer-to-peer program or do you encourage it or or have you implemented it
1: yep yep and um and formalizing it again as part of the workplace violence you know program um we're we're doing that we have an um, you know uh, we have an amazing uh uh, support from the entire organization and they train peer supporters right throughout oh, cool. there with yeah with uh with mental health uh, professionals right and um so I know we've we've had that in our group and that's where it starts and that and then you always want to take it a step further too with um you know with a mental health professional
0: That's awesome. I'm glad to see that you're taking the mm-hmm. Amy's advice and implementing <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs>
1: Sometimes I have to. Cool. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs>
0: I mean for for this like heads of security is like the main. Um, I just talked to a lot of them. How would you recommend going about implementing a program like that for a head of security?
1: Yeah. Um, how, do
0: the budget? how do you? How do you, any any like tips or advice to, to into doing that? It,
1: yeah, it's it's bringing it to the forefront, and I know I've mentioned it uh, a couple times, um, but with workplace violence being at the forefront of a lot of people's, again, you have to make that as part of your program. You have to make that as part of it and include your security staff in that uh, program. So once it's in there, that's a good time to get buy-in from the organization as well um, to make sure that that is in there, Uh, whether it be a budget um, or just getting a peer support program, you know, that's bring it to the forefront and make sure that it's, it's important to you. Um, Technologies are great. Um, I support it. It's it's great. But sometimes you got to worry about the people who are also performing the job with the technology and running the technology. So uh, that has to be a part of your workplace violence program.
0: Totally. So in order to get the buy in, can you give some advice on like how to actually like tactically go about getting buy in?
1: Well, um, mental health is also at the forefront of everybody's mind as well. So listen to the mental health professionals that are out there, right And I guess tactically that's that's a really good question. Um, to bring it to the forefront again, it's that mental health. Um, you also have retention rates. a lot of people look at look at retention rates, burnout. you mentioned burnout as well, uh, Lisa and that that does affect um, any bottom line, right uh, and the culture. The entire culture of your organization, which is very important to a lot of organizations, as it should be, because it affects all of those. So if you take care of your people and and their mental health, they're happier or they can come in and work at their best to provide the best care, the best services to patients, employees, everybody. and, And they tend to stay longer if they're happy at where they're at.
2: And I think education is a big part of the buy-in also because especially for like some of the wellness programs that I'm doing, there's such as, not that main goal is of course mental health support, but also some of those secondary benefits include longevity within the career. So reducing burnout, reducing time off and um, therefore, you know, like mandated overtime can go down. So keeping people happy, healthy, keeps them on the job longer. And that's one of the big things that's different about like the wellness visits aren't like fitness for duty they're not trying to you know put take people off duty it's really about keeping them on the job longer as long as they want yeah. to be and being happier and healthier and showing up to work um, and those things can positively impact the bottom line too.
0: Totally I think w- when we're trying to prove ROI for our technology it's like nurse retention is like a huge, huge yeah. problem I can't yeah. remember it's not exactly but and maybe you know TJ but it's just so expensive to replace a nurse when they quit. And there, a lot of them are quitting right now because, and a lot, the main concern is workplace violence.
1: Yep, so. exactly. So I, again, you, you put that investment in your people and mm-hmm. making sure that they're happier at home. You know, yeah. if, they, if they really do, that's, that's the secondary kind of, um, well, what I think, you know, that it helps if you invest in them. Yeah, you're investing in their careers, but also their personal lives. And a lot of, you know, this generation coming in really does value life outside of work. i um, not saying that previous generations didn't, but yeah. we do, we we value that. And work-life balance is huge for mental health in general. So if you can learn some of these techniques, some of these things, and you invest in your people, it can help them outside. And therefore, they become better employees.
0: Yeah, I mean, and especially in these high-pressure jobs, like ER right. doctors, ER nurses, right. Yes, responders. I mean...
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So um, question for both of you. How do you both envision the convergence of mental health initiatives and workplace violence prevention? We kind of touched on some of it, but anything else to add? I would say um, I really think like just kind of
2: piggybacking off what TJ just said is that when people are happier and mentally well, there's such a reduction in a lot of these incidents, especially that, you know, TJ's working through at the hospital. So, um, teaching some of those skills of just active listening and that empathy for other people can really deescalate situations ideally before it gets to that place of,
1: you know, you, you take care, you take care of your people, you, you invest in their mental health. You're going to have, you're going to have the, a, a better person here to really take care of your patient's your staff, you know, staff taking care of staff as well. Um, It's huge. It creates a a way better uh, culture um, and and atmosphere.
2: Awesome. Like bringing mental health awareness to these situations and teaching some of those trauma-informed de-escalation skills that I know TJ's team is really good at um, to help reduce, you know, the likelihood of these situations escalating further. So um, kind of using what we know about trauma and trauma responses to better uh, communicate and address these issues
0: in the moment is helpful. Awesome. So in closing, reflecting on this conversation, what's one key message or takeaway you'd like listeners to remember regarding mental health and workplace safety?
1: Yeah, so hey, make sure to get that that checkup, right? Now we talked about checkup from the neck up. Make sure to take care of yourself therefore you can take care of the rest right um you're not able to to give 100% you know to to the job and taking care of of people if you're not taking care of yourself
0: love it Shut yeah pick up from the neck up <laughs> i would say
2: also having like a comprehensive plan in place you know like i said earlier right after a critical incident isn't the time to start figuring out what do we do for these people that just witnessed this horrific thing so you know being prepared, having that proactive plan in place, which includes um, preventative interventions as well as post incident response. So kind of having that that full spectrum of let's you know incorporate the skills and teach the skills ahead of time, but then also have a reactive plan for for critical incident response ready to go before it's needed.
0: I love it. Well you guys have been awesome. It's just such an honor to have you both on. So thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having us.
1: Yes, thank you so much for having us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You guys are awesome. I'm like cheering for for both <laughs> of you. I think you guys are going to do awesome things for the world. So Thank you. <laughs> so,
1: thank you very much.
0: So cool to talk to you. Thank, right, you, so much. Guys, thank you so much. Thank you. Great. appreciate, Great. appreciate bye. it. Bye. bye.